This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello, friends, and welcome to a Wednesday Wisdom episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. This passage... Uh, on the woman caught in adultery, is unique as we work our way through uh, the Gospel of John. You might have noticed if you're looking in your Bible that there is an asterisk next to it, or it's in brackets. Most scholars agree that um, these verses were not original to John's Gospel. Some of the ancient manuscripts have it in different places in John. Some of them have it in a different Gospel. Um, Some of those manuscripts, it's not present at all. However, most conservative scholars, they agree that this passage depicts events in Jesus' life and that it bears the markings of of apostle authorship. Um, And therefore, it is present um, in all of the rest of the manuscripts that we have. So I'm not going to speak. I'm not preaching on that this morning, um, but make you aware of that. I'm not going to talk about that more, but if you have more questions or thoughts on that, want to wrestle through that more, talk to me um, after the service, later this week, talk to Gordon, uh, myself. But it is, it is in our, our text this morning. We are working through John. It is here. We are going to work through this. Um, and many, many of the church fathers have commentary on this passage and have spent time working through this. Um, and so we will work through it this morning. Um, this, this passage also poses another issue for us uh, because it is often um, so misused in our day, right? People, as you were reading, you probably went, oh, I know, the, I know that sentence. I've heard that before, right? There's don't cast stones, meaning don't judge. How many times have we heard people uh, say, let him who's without sin cast the first stone? Speaking to the, the subtle implication of that would be that there's maybe there's no judgment at all. Or that, well, only if you're perfect can you judge or punish someone. Let's take a, a quick brief look back at John up till now. John 3.16 through 18, it speaks um, to the reality that judgment has already passed. Jesus is introduced as the, the escape from that judgment. Jesus came to give us the escape of the judgment that had already happened. Then in chapter 5, we see Jesus um, speaking about being given the power uh, to judge. And in that passage in John 5, speaking, speaks to the reality of the unity that the Father and that Jesus have. 
And then Gordon, just a few weeks ago, preached on uh, John 7, mid-7, 7, 7, 24, 25, where Jesus is directly speaking about judgment. And he says, hey, guys, don't judge by appearances, but rather judge rightly. So the challenge for us as we come to this text this morning is the recognition, right? This judgment has passed, that we are all guilty of sin. And I think conceptually, like, I mean, most of us in the room would nod our head to that and kind of go, okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of sin. There's things that I have done in my life that I should not have done. I have I've cheated here, or I, I lied here, or I deceived this. I stole this. The rub for us, though, is that we don't often live or think as though that is true of us. Man, that's hard. I mean, as you think about this last week, month, year, we quickly realize that these words, the recognition that I'm guilty of sin, that's not easy to live out. That's not easy to, to think about. I think we live more like we got our stuff together. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I, I might not be the best, but I'm not like them. I mean, I, I'm pretty good. I, I, do the, I, I do the best that I can. I'm pretty solid. So our passage this morning, it brings all of these things to the forefront for us to examine our hearts in light of what Jesus is saying, how he is interacting with the Pharisees, the scribes, and this woman who's in sin. So that, that is my prayer for us this morning, is that we would wrestle well with this text. And towards that end, our big idea is, what does it look like to live out humility? What does it look like to live out humility? Let me just tell you, this was a rough week of heart examination for myself. Having to sit a week through and prepare this, realizing, oh, wow, I'm... I am not as humble as I once thought I was about eight days ago. It is good, though, for us to come to these texts, to have our hearts opened and bared, and to allow the light of Jesus, as we'll look next week, the light of Jesus to shine in and through. So when the Bible talks about humility, it often speaks and uses the language of meekness. Right, that's a word we use a lot. I think we often see meekness as a word that rhymes with that weakness. We view it as, well, that's you know, I mean, that's someone who is a like a pushover. Um, they they're shy or reserved. Meek people are introverts. I'm an extrovert. How how can I be meek? I. I I think we wrestle with understanding what meekness is. Galatians 5, though, speaks about the fruits of the Spirit. That's one of them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, not that they will be comforted, which is often how we, I think, operate as a definition of meekness, but they will inherit the earth. 
Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, for I am gentle and lowly of heart and meek, and I will give you rest. And in the book of James, as you walk through it, you see meekness associated with wisdom. That's not something we think about often. I think not only do we lack meekness or humility often in our lives, in our culture, in the church, but I don't think we even understand it. And so therefore, how can we even begin to pursue it? How can we even begin to cultivate it and move towards this and come alongside each other to spur each other on towards that? So let's see in our passage how Jesus displays and exhibits humility. Let me again read the first handful of verses, the first six verses for us. So they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses has commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They had said this to test him. They might bring, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus is in the temple teaching. Bunch of people, crowd starts gathering to listen, to hear, to be taught by him of what he has to say. And it's in the midst of this, this situation, this scene, that the, not just one religious leader, not just one person, but the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, so now it's kind of this posse, comes to Jesus to lay this, this situation before him. Oh, he, here's a bunch of people. He's got a captive audience. Let's see how he handles this. They say, this woman has been caught in the act. And they rightly bring up an appeal to the law. It's what God had given them. And they say, what should we do? Let's take a moment, though, and... and Let's look at that law that they are so, so rightly appealing to. Deuteronomy twenty two twenty two, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So this begs the question for us, kind of as you scratch your head like, huh, so uh, where is the man who she was caught with? Why isn't he here? How did the scribes and the Pharisees find out? While we don't know the answers to those questions, we have the the commentary provided to us. The reason they are doing this, the reason they are bringing her here, test him. So they can bring a charge against him. So they can um, convict him of some crime, of some hatred of the law, to show that he is a fraud and a fake and to discredit him in front of his people. They've created this trap. So what they're trying to show is that, you know, all this nice talk, Jesus, about grace, that you've been, you've been speaking about, teaching about, and, and spreading through these masses, practically speaking, it can't hold together when it's lived out in someone's life. I mean, you talk a great game, but practically, it, it can't work. Make it work with this scenario. 
So that is either Jesus has to be moral and trample on this woman. Or he can be compassionate and trample on morality, on the law. So either moral and trample on the woman or be compassionate and merciful and trample on the law. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the trap that they've set for him. It's one or the other. And in Jesus' response, we see what it means to be right and what it means to be humble. They are waiting on bated breath to see how Jesus is going to respond to this situation, this incident. In Jesus' response, we see meekness and we see humility on display. Listen to the second half of of verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. What's Jesus' response? Jesus bends down and writes and wrote with his finger in the ground. All of this is going on. He kneels down to write in the ground. I want to briefly look at two aspects of humility that we see here. I mean, two things that are paired together that are often opposites. Two things that we don't expect as we talk about humility. I think we see gentleness and we see bravery. Gentleness. Notice that Jesus doesn't treat this woman as though he is beneath, she is beneath him. Even though this woman sinfully, morally speaking, is beneath Jesus. He doesn't treat her like she is beneath him, below him. This horrible person. He isn't lashing out at her because of her sin. As they are are asking this question and begging for a response, he doesn't say, have your way with her. Do as you wish. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. Just a couple examples. Jesus with Judas, as they are at the last meal that they are going to have together, goes and rounds and washes the disciples' feet. Washes Judas' feet, knowing what Judas is going to do. Gentleness. Jesus with the three disciples as they're in the garden, as he is preparing to be betrayed. They fall asleep in the midst of this as he pleads with them to pray alongside him. And his response is not, what are you doing? The flesh is willing, or the spirit is willing, excuse me, but the flesh is weak. Peter and Jesus, as Peter is getting ready to deny Jesus, Peter is talking this great game. I'm the man. I would never betray you. I would never do all these things. Jesus' response to him, knowing his heart. Simon, Simon. Gentleness. Time and time again. Those are just three examples. I think our response to situations is often harsh criticism and rash, demanding judgment. I think we often respond with harsh criticism. Things that we don't approve of, that we don't like, maybe that we don't agree with, and we demand immediate and swift judgment. But on the other hand, there's also bravery. 
You see Jesus' fearlessness on display here. He is writing in the, in the ground in the midst of this, this huge dilemma that has been brought before him by the religious leaders of the day with his captive audience there waiting. What he is showing, what the, the writer is showing us is the calm spirit and countenance of Jesus. The fearlessness that Jesus has. I think of the YouTube video um, that circles around Facebook every couple months. The lion that jumps on top of this kind of skinny guy and starts like licking him and is very friendly with him. If you haven't seen it, I didn't actually try typing that into YouTube, but you might try that lion and guy, nice, unexpected, and probably get to it. But that's the picture of this, this YouTube video, this, this giant lion that jumps on top of this guy. You don't expect it. And he licks him, and he's nice. Right? What do you expect? You expect this insanely powerful animal who's pacing in this cage as this guy is trying to open it. And the moment that that cage is open, he bursts out and attacks this guy. I mean, that is what we expect doesn't happen. Immense power that is voluntarily submitting. It's not, we, we know, he has the ability, the power, the energy to do all of that. Intense power that is voluntarily submitting to this little guy. Until we get a grip of these things, we won't get, we won't understand humility. We won't understand meekness. We won't have a starting place to begin to pursue what does this look like for us. It's in Exodus. Moses goes into Egypt at God's command. Mind you, Moses is not excited about this call that God has placed on him. This telling, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt, go to the Pharaoh, and here's what I want you to tell him. He tries over and over to get out of this. God says, no, you're going. Not only are you going, but I will go with you. So he goes to Pharaoh. He demands that he let his entire labor force go. All the people that are doing all the work in his land, I want you to release them. And not only that, but I will give you no compensation, and I want it done now. That is bold, my friends. That is bold. How can he do that? How can he go to one of the most powerful men in the world and demand those things? At least not expecting that I'm going to be killed. I'm going to demand this. I'll do it, but I'm going to die on the spot. And not only that, so he goes back multiple times and does the same thing. Numbers 12.3 tells us, Moses is said to be one of the meekest men on the earth. Biblical understanding of meekness is to be the strongest. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Jesus often in his ministry, as you walk through the Gospels, you see that he acts like nothing. He knows who he is. There's no doubt that he knows who he is. But we have these examples time and time again. We have him washing the disciples' feet. He shouldn't have been doing that. 
That's the job of a lowly servant to do. Hands are going to get all filthy and dirty. Where's your dignity? Where's your understanding of your place and what your expectations should be? Acting like nothing. Spends time, countless time, with sinners. Again, mingling with people that are not likely. Mingling with people that he should not be spending time with. Viewed by the people of his day, and often by the people of our day, as wasting his time. He shouldn't be doing this. He's acting like nothing. Don't you have, you have better things to do. Hang out with the religious leaders. He never says that he has nothing. Before Abraham was, I am. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I am the light of the world. In me, there is no darkness at all. Jesus has no doubt who he is. That enables him to say, I haven't come to serve. I haven't come to be served. I have come to serve. I've come to be a servant. What does that mean for us? I think most of us feel inferior, and therefore we act superior to compensate. Let me say that again. I think most of us feel inferior, live in the reality of inferiority, and therefore we have to act superior to compensate. Jesus knows that he is, he knows he is superior. He knows exactly who he is. And therefore, he can act inferior. I have come to serve, not to be served. He puts all of his power, all of his glory under the interest of others. Real humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Real humility is being freed from the need to focus on yourself, the need to feed your ego. Real humility enables you to be free from cowardliness. C.S. Lewis beautifully displays this in his book, Screwtape Letters, which, on a side note, I highly recommend to read if you haven't. He speaks of the mark of hell as the unsmiling concentration on yourself. The unsmiling concentration on yourself. So being freed from the unsmiling concentration of yourself, it frees you to think of others, to put others higher than yourself. It enables you to be present and to be a non-anxious present in the life of other people. Because the focus doesn't need to be about you. You have no doubt who you are. I am sure and firm in the foundation of who I am. What it means to be me in this world. For those of you who um, were, you know, you with word pictures that I have just created, um, you, know, you need a breath. 
graphical representation of that is helpful to understand all that. Thankfully, Revelation 5 does just that for us. And in it, John is uh, interacting with this elder in Revelation 5. And he says, the elder says to him, as, as John is just weeping, weeping, unconsolably. And the elder says, behold, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed to open the book. Weep no more. So he kind of lifts his eyes up through his tears, and he looks to where the elder is pointing. He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Did you catch that? The, the, the elder says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He looks. What does he see? He sees a lamb. So which is it? Is it a lion or is it a lamb? Is both. Jesus is both. And we will be both as we follow and submit our lives to Christ. You will be a, a lambish lion. Or a lionish lamb if you prefer. This is what we pray for. This is what we desire to cultivate as a church. That Christ would enable this reality in the lives of his people. So we have this display of humility. In the midst of this trap that the religious leaders have set. Now Jesus' response to them. We see that humility is explained. Listen to the rest of the verses in our section. As they continue to ask him, he's down on the ground writing. He hasn't answered them. As they continue to ask this question and press on him, he stood up and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and now on sin no more. They're demanding this answer from him. We have you trapped. You will not escape this. You're not going to ignore us. I want this done. Jesus gives up and gives his words. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And in saying this, he doesn't mean, nor do the people understand him to mean, that only if you're sinless can you uh, punish or judge. If that was the case, they would their response would be one of mocking, jeering him, laughing at him. I mean, they would have killed Jesus on the spot if that was what he was saying. They walk away. The reason I know that they walk away convicted by his words. They walk away hearing exactly loud and clear what Jesus has just said and what Jesus means. He is directly speaking to their involvement in this matter. The trap. They don't care about truth. They don't care about the law. They don't even, they don't care about this woman. They want Jesus to pay. They despise him. 
They want him out of their area. They want his influence to be demolished and gone so they can get back to doing their thing. Jesus is just quoting the Old Testament back to them. John 17, 7. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hand of all the people. So um, where, where is that witness again? Right? It's, it's this, this posse that has come. The religious leaders, the, the scribes and the Pharisees that have all come. Hey, Jesus, here's someone. What should we do with her? Stone her or let her go? Uh, how do you handle this situation? There's no witness there. There's no one there. Deuteronomy 22, 22 again. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. Where's the man? So they saw this act where someone brought him there and they've, they've excused the witness. We don't know the whole story and unraveling of it all. But all they have done is brought this woman before him. That would be called partiality. The Bible speaks out very heavily about the sin of partiality. That is not good. So without the man there, with no witness, there is no one there without sin themselves that is involved in this trap, in this situation. And this is what Jesus is pointing to. They hear it loud and clear. And with that, they go away, I mean, one by one, by one, older to younger. Till all that is left in that space is this woman and Jesus. Jesus turns to her and says something, and it's the heart of the gospel. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He knows she had sinned. She knows she has sinned as well. But he says, I don't condemn you. Let's take a step back here for a moment. Because that doesn't add up. And Jesus only has two options, right? Either he can say consistently, and therefore I condemn her. Or, she's not guilty, therefore I don't condemn you. What Jesus says is, you're guilty, I don't condemn you. He creates a whole new option. He completely shatters the world's perception. How can he keep these two things together? This is why humility is so unique in this world. Because you are either going to be moral or you're going to be gracious. You can't be both. What Jesus does is he recognizes and says to this woman, she has sinned, you have sinned, and yet you are forgiven. He turns to her and says, I don't condemn you. The reason he can say this is because he will be condemned. I, I will take this stoning for you. Not a single pebble will touch you because they will all be directed at me. I will take them all. And that's what Mark 10, 33 says. Jesus will be betrayed 
and they will condemn him. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, every other religion says you are either guilty and you are condemned, or you are either not guilty and therefore you're not condemned. Christianity is the only that says you are guilty. You are so guilty. And yet you are not condemned at all. There is no condemnation in that. You are a sinner, and yet you are utterly accepted. Christ saves us through his humility. And this is what changes us, brothers and sisters. This reality enables us to move out in humility. Because we recognize that we are guilty people who have been forgiven an incredible amount by a gracious and loving and caring Savior who embodies humility. As we lay hold of that truth and as it gets more and more rooted in our hearts and our minds, it melts the pride. It destroys the arrogance. And it dissolves the fear that so often and easily consumes us as we look at other people, as we um, move towards them, and as we engage with them. Who is this text written to? It's written to a group of people who are generationally beyond Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's the oldest of the Gospels, or the latest of the Gospels, if you will. It was written to offer correction to the Christian life, for what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live out the Christian life. That's often why there's, if you read through John and you kind of put it up against the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see a lot of new things in John that's not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You're going to see a lot of things missing in John that are present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why they're called the synoptic gospels. They're very similar. John is very different in a lot of regards. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, similar. John, it's written generations later. There are people that are not, that have become followers of Christ, never saw Jesus, never saw his his life, experienced his life, his death, his resurrection. It was a story that was told to them. This passage is good for us to meditate, to ponder, to reflect on, to examine our hearts with. Because we, like the original audience of John, we need, often need correction in what it means for us to live out the Christian life in real time, day in, day out, in light of all the things that we are going to face this coming week. I think we often gloss over passages like this, or we, or we think, Oh man, this is a great this is a great passage for this person. I really wish they were here. You know, Jeremy did talk about this podcast. I, I'm gonna I need to get the email, the email address. And I need to send it to them because they need to listen to this. This is good stuff for them. I got some pithy quotes that I, I just I'm gonna kind of lay hold to that. Oh, that was really good. I'm gonna text this to this person. I think we spend a lot of our days trying to tell people 
that they are interpreting Scripture wrongly. But we spend very little time trying to apply it rightly to ourselves. I think we spend a lot of time trying to tell the world how they are interpreting Scripture wrongly. And we spend very, very little time trying to rightly apply the Scripture to our own hearts. It's not an indictment. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm saying it because this is, this is what I wrestled with this week. As I look at my own heart, as I examine the ways that I often am prone to move towards people, or as I'm prone not to move towards people. We need to be a people who wrestle with these texts, with these passages, who apply them to ourselves and then move out into the world, into our neighborhoods, into our, our jobs, in humility and love, having wrestled with these things and apply them to our hearts. One final application here real quick as I come to a close. Notice the order. Jesus doesn't say, sin no more. Now I don't condemn you. In Exodus, God didn't give the Israelites the Ten Commandments and say, I'm going to see you guys in a year and I'll bring you out of the persecution, the bondage that you are experiencing right now. Now he said, I'm going to deliver you from this. And then he gave them the commands that he knew that they would not be able to fulfill. That's the order. If you have an enslaving habit, you can be tempted very easily to say something along the lines of, if only I can stop this habit, then God will love me. Then I will experience his favor, his affection. Then my life will, it'll be good. It'll, be, it'll make sense. That's not how God does it. We need to cling to the order that Jesus demonstrates to this woman that he gives us grace and acceptance before we are changed. She is left there to just receive his words. Look, these people in this passage are a picture of all the things that are accusing this woman. As Jesus steps in and he silences all the accusations, and what's ultimately left is Jesus and this woman. She started this interaction feeling the mounting accusations of the reality of her sin. And Jesus meets her in them and removes them. This is a picture of us. As we come to Jesus, all the things that are accusing you, all the things that are making you feel bad and horrible about yourself, they will go away as the gospel brings life to areas that you thought were dead, areas that you thought could never be healed or restored. And like the interaction with this woman, turn to you and say, is there anyone accusing you? Is there any reason for you to feel bad about yourself? And your response can be, no, Lord. As we realize that he is with us in the midst of it all. He's guarding, he's protecting, he's reminding us of his faithfulness, of his love, and of his acceptance of us. It is all possible because of the work, the final work of Christ 
his life, his death, and his resurrection. Faith and trust in him. Where we find acceptance, where we find love, what enables us to move out and towards other people and to cultivate humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I am grateful that you are a a loving and forgiving God. Lord, that you are far more forgiving than I am, that you are far more loving than I am, that your grace is far deeper than my grace, and that your mercy extends far beyond my mercy. Oh God, would you grow your people? Would you enable us to understand what it means to be loved? what it means to be accepted, what it means to be shown mercy and grace when we did not deserve it. Father, that we in Christ today stand changed people. Lord, would you enable us to move out of the reality that we have been forgiven much, that we have been shown mercy beyond what we can understand and comprehend even. And that the words to this woman echo in our minds. I do not condemn you. Father, we are guilty, but we have grace beyond what we can imagine. We are thankful this morning that our our guilt has, has been satisfied by the blood of your son, Jesus. His perfect life that we could not live. His death which we deserved for the punishment of our sin, that we can now come before a holy and righteous judge and God. And yet as we look at you, your arms are open. You have the best robe to put on us. You have the ring of honor to put on our hand, and you have a table prepared before us, and you invite us into the feast of your table. Oh God, would you grow your people Would you grow our hearts? Father, I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.